Hey, Metal Dave with you, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. Today, we're going to nerd out on the big four, the big four of thrash, that being, of course, Slayer, Metallica, Anthrax, and Megadeth. We're going to share some stories, share some thoughts, give some opinions, just chew the fat a little bit on the big four. But before we do that, Jason, what's going on with you? Uh, what's what you got? What you listening to? What you reading? I, what you watching? I am alive. I am doing fine. Um, feeling good about everything. And uh, thank you for asking. Um, I have. Uh, I, I'm not. I wouldn't say addicted to documentaries or rock documentaries, but every once in a while, I will scroll past something and say out loud, "Man, I need to watch that. I'm going to learn something if I watch that." Um, I uh, there's an AC/DC one. You know, we just talked about AC/DC Power Up in our uh, in our last episode. The one just prior to this and uh everyone uh, should go check that out by the way um but there's an acdc one that i can't really tell if it's official or not it just looks the the ad on it looks kind of janky so yeah. i need to just uh investigate that one but um i pressed play and was mesmerized a uh, documentary about gordon lightfoot oh wow Nice. And um, it's it's a pretty incredible story. He I I don't think I ever knew he was from Canada. Yeah. And he is um, ultimately revered as Canada's you know biggest songwriter. Yeah. Uh, um, by anyone and everyone from uh, globally. Um, of course, being um, uh, idolized by uh, and in the film, I don't re recall the title of the film, but um, um, oh, oh, I think it's the one of the song, one of his song titles, which was uh, "If You Could Read My Mind." That's right. Oh, okay. If you could read my mind, love. That one. That's the yeah. that's the title of the movie. Okay, so. Um, otherwise, no, you know, his, 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 a couple of his other hits were, uh, uh, Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and of course, Sundown. And, uh, he, you know, he wrote songs for everyone. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Streisand sang his songs. The Dandy Warhols covered his music. Um, and it's incredible. They have Randy Bachman and, um, you know, members of the Guess Who and BTO. Um, they have Rush. They have Alex and Getty. Like, Getty goes on for like 10 minutes talking about how he's the, the proud son and that he is this really big deal um, and that his, uh, his, his, the way his guitar and his words were huge impact on everyone who played music from, you know, even if you played hard rock all the way down to, of course, singer songwriter, but you know, he, he wrote with everyone. There's all, anyway, it's, it really, uh, was a wonderful, um, experience. And I learned a lot 
Um, yeah. And just how he wrote songs and, and he studied that shit. You yeah. know, he meant every word, which is kind of what Getty was talking about. And his lyrics always made sense and were extremely personal. Um, and it was never just like, you know, all right, rock and roll, just, you know, bullshit to party to, you know, uh, it, it, he was serious and a serious songwriter, uh, you know, should be revered by his peers. And he was, yeah, uh, but it's just unbelievable how many people covered his, his songs. Um, yeah. which I didn't, I didn't realize. And there, I swear there's songs out there that you've heard, you know, pop stars do Gordon Lightfoot songs. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you just didn't know it. Um, yeah. so that, that was, uh, that was something that I really, really, uh, really dug into a few nights ago. Yeah. I'll have to look for that. Cause I'm a total, uh, uh, rock doc junkie, anything to do with music. Um, I don't, you know, I don't care if it's a country western star or a Broadway singer or whatever. I'm fascinated by the just the tale of, you know, how these people came to prominence and how they're, you know, how they do their craft and write songs and, you know, just their inspiration and how they rose to fame. I find that stuff fascinating and regardless of the genre. So uh, yeah, I'll I'll have to look cool for that one and add I, it to my list. Yeah, the, the cool thing, the really cool thing is this doc was made while he was alive, so he's starring in his own documentary. Oh, he's cool! He's living legend, like the Lemmy movie. It's like I'm glad that they he was the star of his own Hollywood movie. <laughs> you yeah. know, so the yeah. fact that he's still alive. I mean, he's 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 really old, but he still plays sometimes, and he. He's still around and still has his fan base is, uh, you know, you don't even know you like Gordon Lightfoot until you find out it's Gordon Lightfoot. Right, right. Because of, because of what I said a minute ago. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but yeah, I think that he's still alive. And a lot, lot of information. Wow. I'll have to look for that one. I'm a total nerd for that kind of stuff. So Gordon Lightfoot, I'll add him to my list. What about you? What are you doing? Um. Well, I... Uh, for those who are listening who may not know, I have a 12-year-old son, and he's into collecting vinyl right now. And, uh, of course, we're in this age of pandemic, so uh, you kind of have to make appointments at record stores, and you have to wear a mask, and they only let you know a handful of people in at a time or whatever. Uh, but my son and I, we went to a record store here in Austin and you know we're kind of we kind of branched off into opposite corners of the store and he comes back to me and tapping me on the shoulder and he goes dad dad look what i found and it's uh, a vinyl copy of blue oyster cults fire of unknown origin record and i was like oh cool and it was 99 cents <laughs> So I was like, oh, man, uh, you know, the single on that record is Burning For You. And, of, of course, Love I was familiar. Song. Yeah, it's a great song. Uh, it was one of the early videos on MTV. Um, so I'm thinking that song alone is worth 99 cents, right? Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> well, what that's what the song would cost if you downloaded it. Yeah, yeah. A song at a time now in this messed up world we live in when when we grew up it was you buy the whole record or you go home right right you break a piece off of the album and take it home <laughs> yeah, that's what's right. going on now I, I call i call bullshit <laughs> well, <laughs> well you know so the whole album was 99 cents it's Perfect. on vinyl 
um, I was looking at the song tracks, uh, the, 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 the track listing, and uh, realizing, wow, what a great record this is. It's got, uh, you know, besides Burning For You, the title track is on there. Uh, Veteran of the Psychic Wars is on there. Joan Crawford is on there. Um, it's a really solid record. So we brought it home, and we were listening to it, and I realized while I'm listening to it, that band Ghost took everything they know from that album. <laughs> I, you, I, I can see that. Yeah. See that? It's like if you listen to this album, uh, Fire of Unknown Origin, you can totally see where Ghost got everything. And uh, it's just one of those records that uh, it's a great listen from start to finish. It's kind of, it's, it's not a concept album as far as I'm aware, but it definitely kind of has a continuation that seems to flow naturally across one side and then over to the other. It's a full listening experience. It's not, it's not necessarily divided into songs, if you know what I'm saying. It's not, like, but not a concept record or a lean? Yeah, it's not a concept record as far as I know, but it just, musically, it just kind of flows. And that's not to say that the songs all sound the same. They do have their own identity, but somehow the listening experience is very cohesive. It's just a great album in that regard. And uh, I was flipping it over, being the nerd that I am. And do you know who produced that record? Martin Birch. Martin Birch, that's correct. And um, I never knew. Of course, we I know Martin from his work with Iron Maiden. And I think he did some Deep Purple and some Rainbow. And uh, he did Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. But I never affiliated him with Blue Oyster Cult. What year? Um, it was 1981 is when the record came out. So I was doing my homework, and my favorite album of all time is Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast, and I know that came out in 1982. So I, I guess he was obviously working on this Blue Oyster Cult record just before he went into the studio with Iron Maiden to cut Number of the Beast. But uh, anyway, 99 Cents, Blue Oyster Cult, Fire of Unknown Origin, a great album that I missed some somehow along on the first go around in 1981 <laughs> but well, i'm finally catching up to it and it's it's awesome awesome so the 99 cents that ghost did not spend on that record has paid off big for them <laughs> yeah exactly yeah they've done well by uh, getting some great ideas from uh, that record yeah i mean the title alone is very metal fire yeah. of unknown origin should be should have been on heaven and hell you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a great title. Um, great album. The artwork is awesome. Um, but yeah, for 99 cents, you can't beat it. And, uh, I'm glad to have it as part of my collection. I've been listening to it pretty, pretty often ever since I acquired it. Cause, uh, I can't believe I missed it the first go around, but today we are talking about the big four this is this is a subject that i know jason is going to have uh i am excited about this yes this is right in your wheelhouse um so of course uh, we're talking slayer megadeth metallica anthrax um where do we start what 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 do you want to talk about with the big four i i guess you know when you think of the big four, you know, and you think, and you just say it at the coffee table or in the lunchroom or whatever, and maybe someone our age or even a, a, a little older 
um, would think, uh, oh, yeah, you mean the Beatles? No, that's the Fab Four, dummy. <laughs> uh, yeah. the four, I don't know who coined the phrase the Big Four, but it once you find out what it is, you realize, oh, okay. And it could have been Lars, you know, could who knows? James could have been right. But I'm thinking it might have come uh, from either their camp or or Live Nation or a, some someone they knew industry wise that was trying to sort of like uh, put hurt to herd those cats, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a brilliant sort of historical moment in music. Uh, much less heavy metal and whatever subgenre you choose to use. Um, I prefer the you know the speed me- the term speed metal or thrash because all four of those bands were ma- are are masters of that. And then some people might just call it good old '80s metal, but that turns it into an umbrella, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so not to get too historical, it's gonna sound all over the place like I'm a confused madman and uh, <laughs> heavy not metal, heavy <laughs> right heavy metal junkie. What I'm uh, what I'm not that either. Yeah, uh, right. there explain. are things there are things that I would like to talk about first. Now when you go back to any kind of Genesis um the first band is Metallica for me, just for where I was standing in the US. I remember reading a Kerrang magazine and it had photos of these kids in LA uh who were being, you know, who were sort of in the up and coming demo section in the back of a Kerrang magazine, which is an English magazine. Yeah. And so these kids from LA who are in this my favorite English rock and roll magazine, Kerrang magazine, and I'm reading about the word Metallica for the first time. And someone means someone from Kerrang, either they were a US contributor to the English magazine that did the article or they someone from England flew over there and did a piece on them because it was color photos. It wasn't just like, hey, there's this demo from these kids in LA and da da da. I'll try to fast forward. So that was the first time. But I mean, Lars was wearing silver spandex with no shirt and had like a page boy haircut. Very, very short hair. I don't know if he could even grow a mustache yet. I mean, they were young. <laughs> yeah. You know, they were they were 18 years old or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, 17, if, if maybe, right? Um, and they were had done a handful of shows. I'm holding my hand up, right? It could be three or four shows at that point. And I want to say they might have even still been a five-piece band. Oh, wow. It's Lloyd Grant on guitar, Dave Mustaine on guitar, uh, Ron McGovney on bass, and then, you know, Lars and James. James just be the singer at that point. Okay, let's fast forward. So, you know, everybody knows Kill Em All comes out. But meanwhile... Everybody in San Francisco at that time had seen Metallica play prior to the release of that, of course, in a very short time between, you know, 81, which I think is they James and Lars met. Um, demo trading, tape trading created this whole thing. And there, of course, the same thing that was happening in Los Angeles and 
it's happening in San Francisco and New York and even in Texas and De- Detroit and whatever. There's all these underground hard rock and heavy metal scenes. Yeah. You had Anthrax in New York. You had Metallica, L.A. via San Francisco. You had, um, uh, well, in, in Exodus and Testament and, you know, was had the Bay Area is this mecca for what, what it is that we're really talking yeah. So you have this mecca of, you know, heavy music happening in San Francisco. I mentioned all the tape trading. These people are writing each other and calling each other. I'm talking anthrax. Uh, you know, everybody knows the story. Dave Mustaine was let go from Metallica. Kirk Kamet from Exodus flies to the East Coast. They make the record. They go on tour. The same thing is happening with anthrax. Uh, and you know, these, these bands are getting what I call garage label deals, you know, small record garage, you know, these, a guy who owns a record store creates a label, you know, that kind of a thing is going on all from the budding tape trading thing. So Dave Mustaine leaves, you know, forms Megadeth immediately after, uh, he leaves Metallica. So there, you know, there, there's Megadeth and Metallica already gunning for each other's asses and breakneck, you know, attitude and fu attitude, and Anthrax is just trying to write the fastest song they can without it not sounding like, you know, too much like Judas Priest or something. Yeah, respectively, of course. Uh, because they wrote like good sort of boogie hard rock, but heavier and, you know, gasolined up, uh, muscle rock, but they were going to you know, it was just, yeah, it was on fire. Fistful of metal, kill them all. Killing is my business and business is good. (laughs) And Slayer show no mercy. Yeah. Things are happening sort of at the same time. And there's some simpatico going on. Little did the rest of the world. It took a long time for people to catch on. 85, 86, 87. By that time, which is a really short time from you talking 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87. It's not even a decade. And these bands are already touring together, creating this music that's completely breaking down any wall built that says you can't do that on a guitar. You yeah. can't do that on drums. You yeah. can't do that on a bass, a la Cliff Burton, um, Frankie Bello, Dan Lilker, uh, who was a member of Anthrax. He's the original Anthrax bassist. Yeah. Dave Mustaine, I feel like, taught everyone how to to play like that. Yeah. Um, being that Slayer is from Los Angeles, um, they were a bit niche with, you know, the their lyrics were even more violent than uh, the normal, you know, Kill Em All, which is basically about headbanging and thrashing. Right, right. right. Um, and some of Anthrax had some of that as well. And they had a cover song. Alice Cooper's 18 is on that. Yeah. Which yeah. sort of like set them up to be something else on top of a speed metal band, a thrash metal band, in my yeah. opinion. Obviously, they were into Kiss and Alice Cooper, and they wanted to write good melodic songs just as much as they wanted to burn the house down, right? Yeah. Um, Slayer is its own thing. 
uh, Megadeth did not sound like Metallica, but there was this obvious vein between them, like a like a Siamese twin sort of a thing. But then you think about the Bay Area and the California, the Slayer. You know, they were trying to out fast each other, sort of. Yeah. Then you had that. Uh, you so you had all this California stuff, and then you had Anthrax, which is kind of the odd bird. Their style was only slightly different than anybody else's over on the West Coast. But because they were there from that sort of uh, uh, genesis, to use my own word, uh, they're included in the big four. Now, this is going to come up again and again as to maybe why Testament and Exodus and Overkill, which is another East Coast, uh, East Coast, uh, of yeah. course, Exodus and Testament being Bay Area, right? And uh, and you know, there's so many sort of under just under the surface bands that I could talk about. Uh, you know, one being Dark Angel. You know, they were like the other speed metal band that was similar to Slayer that could have, should have, would have been part of the Big Nine or yeah. whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah, okay. but that goes and goes, and that's a that's arguable, uh, friendly argument, right? Yeah, that, that that could have turned into something. Let's go back to the top. The idea of the big four um, came about for a show in uh, Bulgaria, Poland. Pol, yeah. I think they did the first one in Poland. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. maybe there were rumors of the, there being an entire tour of that, but yeah. I remember there was actually a slew, a, a small amount of shows that had the other three, but without Metallica, for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't, I'm there, I don't know any if there's any politics or anything behind that. Probably. I don't really care. I don't really <laughs> care. Well, you know, unfortunately, that lives among us. Yeah. Um. Uh, so. What what are your thoughts and you know sort of well, where I, I was there I was there I had show no mercy and kill them all and yeah when the records were brand new I had so, those rec- I had fistful of metal I had you know killing is my business where were you in eighty three Well it's kind of something you touched on earlier so my sort of evolution through as a rock fan you know started with Kiss and then I got a little heavier with ACDC and Van Halen and then I graduated to like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and I didn't see how it was possible to get any heavier than like Iron Maiden or Judas Priest right and then I heard the big four bands and it was just leaps and bounds away from something that I didn't think could be surpassed, you know? And, uh, it was just crazy that there was this scene that was creating this type of music that sort of capitalized on everything that came before and just revved it up to this insane speed. And then, uh, you know, added the lyrics were kind of violent and, uh, it was, it was just heavy beyond heavy. And I was, you know, I remember one of the things in preparing for the show, even though we don't prepare much, <laughs> I was going to ask you, why do you think that the big four is so uniquely American? And I have a theory about this. And, you know, the 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 building blocks of the thrash metal, the big four thrash metal sound are, of course, the new wave of British heavy metal 
and hardcore, right? They married those two styles to come up with what we know as thrash metal or the big four sound or whatever you want to call it. And I was I was thinking to myself, why isn't there a British band or a European band that kind of that was in the big four? And I thought, well, maybe they obviously had the 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 native new wave of British heavy metal bands as influences, right? And I thought, well, maybe they just didn't have the hardcore scene. But if you look back, Britain had bands like GBH and Discharge and uh, Anti-Nowhere League and The Exploited. So they had a hardcore scene. I just I'm curious to know why the big four is so uniquely American when the ingredients were available to everyone. No, I know that there are, you know, uh, European and British uh, you know, heavy bands and hardcore bands and thrash bands. Sure. Yeah. Why their, their scene didn't really spawn something as a, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think that they put it all into a box and sold it on, you know, uh, sold it the way that, uh, that someone has sold the big four. Um, but, but when you think about thrash, I in in Europe at least I think about what was happening in for as early as like a, you know pre Metallica uh, with uh, you know just prior six months to maybe a year or two before with the the new wave of British heavy metal but on top of it the German thrash like Sodom and Destruction and bands like that right with and Creator which are this extremely violent hardcore music, but leaning into more of a metal thing with long hair and leather jackets and bullet belts, which is exactly sort of the, uh, the costume, if you will, the, the, the battle gear that you, that fits right. The uniform that fits yeah. with what it is that we're talking about. Uh, it's important to me that, uh, Europe and uh, the British Isles, and uh, which is which is where um, you know it all began with the the Zeppelin Sabbath uh, into Priest and uh, Maiden, and you know all of these bands influenced everybody else over there the way that the Big Four influenced everybody else over here. But it was Europe and England that influenced. Americans to play that fast, no matter what anybody says. Yeah. Okay. And then I think it went back and forth. It was like a, a, a game of tennis, you know, it's like they hit the ball and it was like motorhead and uh, diamond head and angel, Witch and all those new wave of British heavy metal bands that, that played fast from time to time, super melodic, you know, yeah. like, like if Lemmy could sing like Paul McCartney, he would have, but he, but he couldn't. He did I'm his best. He couldn't. <laughs> well, of course, because he inadvertently created heavy metal. Yeah. No, wasn't really. Motorhead's not to me a heavy metal band. They are a heavy metal attitude, and um, convenient to fit the label of heavy metal because of their own uh, uh, shortcomings, if you will. Because. <laughs> yeah. You know, Lemmy, you know, Lemmy's a, a, a dirty pirate and he sounds like a dirty pirate. So, of course, they're heavy metal, but it's blues on 10. Yeah. Diamond Head, same thing. Bluesy, melodic, 
fun to listen to, very interesting, but almost like a, a radio-friendly heavy metal more than just a speed metal thing, like you, like what it's turning into by the time James and Lars do their thing to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and I think that you know Dave Mustaine is a champion in this conversation. Don't you know? Don't let's not leave out. I'm not going to leave out Dave Mustaine because he was into all of this stuff at the same times that Lars is showing up in America from Denmark, going, "Hey, check this out!" You know, playing DJ on a Saturday night while they drink beer at when they're 16 and 17 years old after answering ads in the newspaper to form a rock band. Yeah. So. They're not setting out to be the fastest band in the world. They're just kids worshiping heavy metal, which is sounds like you and me or yeah. anybody else. And, yeah. uh, and it just happened to be that that was their passion and they made it their life. Um, but, you I know, think, yeah, the, the, the big four, you know, the tag, I almost want to say it was pro- it could have been created by a journalist, you know, and it's it's almost become it's almost like a marketing thing, right? But at the same time, if you look at the album sales of those four bands, they're far and away uh, ahead of anybody else. So they rightfully are the big four, right? I mean, there's there's justification for the term. Um, they're globally recognized. They've sold tons of records. Uh, so there is some validation to the term the big four. Uh, from from a uh, measure of success type standpoint, you know, and uh, there's there's no doubt. There's no doubt. All four of those bands have, uh, you know, have been mentioned, if not done, the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, which is arguably I mean, I don't read Rolling Stone magazine uh, because it smells like perfume. (laughs) <laughs> so it's not very heavy metal to me. I mean, not that I want to buy a magazine that smells like, you know, uh, a shitty Lemon. rock bar, you know, like <laughs> stale beer or something. But yeah. my point is, it's glossier than the rest, and you can use in every sense of the word glossy. Yeah. And I don't really like my when I'm talking about the big four. I don't really prefer the glossy of any of those bands. I prefer when they just entered, like like Rain and Blood is the peak. Among the Living is the Peak, um, you know, Master of Puppets, arguably, uh, you can go either way yeah. with Metallica because you could go to a little further into their polishedness um, and then learning experience just because everybody in all of these bands has grown up quite a bit. They're not 18 years old trying to, you know, outfast each other. Right, right. So that's a, that's an important thing to bring up too. Um, uh, so, it, w- yeah. So, uh, which which of the big four is your favorite? If you had to pick, I always one. I always have to go with Metallica. I can't not go with Metallica. Yeah, and, and it's probably a tie all the way around with. Anthrax, Megadeth, and Slayer. Even though Slayer would, if I had to pick a second, it might be Slayer. But I can't do that to Anthrax or Megadeth because there's moments in, well, I've already confessed. You know, it's probably uh, Peace Cells and Killing Is My Business. Those were the Megadeth records that I just can't not have in my collection. Yeah. Uh, Or my Deserted Island 
package. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got to have uh, Among the Living in there. I just have to have it in there. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I could argue that there's there's spotted moments throughout all four of these guys' uh, songwriting careers that I'm going, I really love this moment. Yeah. Whether, and say I love the entire record. I'm getting uh, to uh, pin. I'm, I don't mean to pinpoint of that moment because I'd rather take a whole record than break a piece off and take it home. Like you've heard me mention before. Right. Right. I've, uh, I- I'm kind of a Metallica guy myself. Um, I just find that first of all, I feel like I've dedicated more time to them. Uh, they probably came on my radar first. And, yeah. That's what it is for me too. And, and I've just invested more time in them because they were so groundbreaking. Um, yet, accessible like i remember the first time i heard slayer the first time i heard slayer was the hell awaits record and i remember listening to it in my buddy's car uh you you probably know this guy scott stein from valkyrie yes Yes, i I do i was in his car he was playing me slayer and i was like oh my god i can't even listen to this what is this it was just noise you know interesting you know just re- real quick i've heard these something very similar as as the this could be a total bullshit rumor that uh daryl abbott dime some people call him dimebag yeah that that dime uh heard kill them all and said the same thing. What is this? And then ultimately figured out like, Oh damn, this stuff is awesome. You know? But yeah. First reaction was not, I can't do it. This is right. Easy. Give me more Van Halen and kiss and black Sabbath. Yeah. Right. And that, I think that's what leads me back to Metallica. Like, uh, I could appreciate them immediately and Slayer had to grow on me because they were just so extreme, you know, compared to anything else I heard. Um, so I I probably, if I had to, I'm kind of like you, I would pick Metallica at the top and then, and then the rest kind of becomes a rotating, you know, depends on what day you ask me. I, I find the other three to be on equal footing. Um, and it just depends on what mood I'm in and what day you ask as far as if I had to list two, three, and four. Um, but I remember, so you, you were talking about uh, Metallica going to New York to record the debut. And I remember reading Scott Ian's book. I think it's called I'm the man. Yeah. I wish I had that. I, I need to read that. It's a good read. And, and there was a thing that stood out to me. If, if, if I'd only took away one thing from that book, he was talking about how Metallica made the trip across the country to sleep in a cold warehouse when they were recording the Kill 'Em All record, and you know, all these years later, it's it's so hard to remember that Metallica was once a struggling band because they're just this huge juggernaut now, and they're all millionaires, and you just you tend to forget that at one time they were driving around the country in a station wagon, you know, bumming meals and places I've never, to sleep. You know, I've never let that that uh, ingredient go away. Um, I saw them on the Kill 'Em All tour, of course, and they were in a Winnebago, like literally all like, you know, could have been like seven or eight kids in a, someone's borrowed Winnebago <laughs> pulling a trailer. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and so and it was a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Slayer uh, saw them. I, I open. I opened for Slayer on the first tour at the Ritz in Austin. I uh, have the date, November 29th of 1984. Uh, Hell Awaits wasn't even out yet. So they had wow. shown no mercy and uh, the haunting, the chapel. EP. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was uh, $6 to get in. <laughs> and anyway, they pulled up in the alley behind the Ritz here in Austin in a yellow Camaro pulling a U-Haul. <laughs> or no, I'm sorry. It was a gear truck. They, yeah, it wasn't, they weren't pulling a trailer. I, I think it was a gear, a U-Haul truck. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, and I, the band was riding a, in a yellow Camaro that I believe, uh, belonged to Tom Mariah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, you know, you know, you hear those stories and I, and I always appreciated that because I mean, as you know, every band starts like that, but you have a tendency with Metallica because their success is so gigantic that you forget about those things. And then when people rag on Metallica for whatever reason, I I just have to remind them or think back to myself, these guys earned it, dude. I mean, if you're willing to get in a car and drive across the country and sleep in a warehouse, then you've earned your St. Anger snare. You've earned load and reload. You've earned your album with Lou Reed. You know, you can do whatever you want. That's uh, right. It's it's Beatles style. You toughed it no out, man. Dog, no one's dogging anyone who is a member or is a living member of the Beatles for making a bad record. No one dogs out the Beatles. I'm not saying that the Metallica are the Beatles. They were the Beatles. I'm not... And when you're talking about what it is you're talking about, about slags, about whatever, because, oh, they sold out. Well, what do you do? As soon as you make a record and sell it, you you're, sold out. You, you're selling your music. Yeah. Uh, if this yeah. is if you love what you do so much that you uh, want it to be the way that you put food in your mouth. Yeah. You sold out. OK. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's a whole other show about Yeah, yeah. But I, I just thought that out was a, yeah. that's an interesting point and it's and it's one that's easily lost when you consider the magnitude of Metallica's success. But uh you and by the say, way you could say that about any of those bands. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's very true. Um and if you get a chance to read Scott Ian's book, I remember I borrowed it from somebody, but it was a it was a great read. So I feel like what what that book is is saying and what you took from is that that puts it in a perspective for you. Yeah, you know, like what you took away from what's in Scott's words, you that puts it in perspective. Where Mustaine is having to think about that while he's on a greyhound. What Dave Mustaine on a greyhound? <laughs> yes, after. Yeah. Being- Booted after after waking up from Lars's foot, kicking him in the ribs and throwing a greyhound bus ticket on his chest. Hey, wake up! Your bus leaves in an hour. Yeah, that's like kids messing with each other is all yeah. that is. But that's yeah. brutal when you think about it career wise. You know, off the Scott Ian full circle here. Scott Ian's talking about the cold warehouse floor that Dave Mustaine woke up on to a bus ticket. Yeah. 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 And then what does he do? He goes and starts his own band and and becomes, a, uh, you know, his band is one of the big four. That's crazy. It's like if revenge is any kind of motivator, uh, uh, Mustaine bottled it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Um, I remember uh, as close as I ever got to seeing a big four gig was uh, the Clash of the Titans tour. You remember that? 
I do. I I missed the tour completely. I was I was busy myself. I was making records myself. Yeah, on the I road s- or something. Yeah. I saw it at uh, Sunken Gardens in San Antonio, and it was you know it was a dream bill, of course. Uh, minus Metallica, so it was uh, Slayer, Anthrax, Megadeth, and an unknown Alice in Chains was the opening act. And uh, I remember thinking Alice was like completely out of their element, you know, but they they soldiered on. They didn't let the hecklers get to them. They put on look a good what, show. Look what happened. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. He, you know, obviously went on to huge success. But I remember that bill and that tour as it went around the country. I think they were changing headliners every night. So in one market, you know, Slayer would headline. The next night in another city, Anthrax would headline or whatever. And uh, I think in San Antonio, uh, Anthrax was the headliner. And Slayer was the first of the three bands to come on. And later after the gig, um, I was actually working that show. I was like an usher or a security guy. My job was basically to keep people keep drunk people away from crashing into the soundboard, right? So I've got this perfect vantage wow. point. It's right. a great... What year, what year was that? 80, oh, man. 80, 80, 89? Yeah, somewhere in there. Um, maybe, yeah. maybe 90. Early like, 90? Somewhere in that ballpark, okay. yeah. I'm not exactly sure, um, but somewhere in that time frame. And uh, so after the gig, I had access to the to the back area where the buses were parked and whatnot. And so in between performances, um, I had to go to the back and take care of some other business. My job was to sort of run back and forth between the soundboard and back the backstage area. And when I was back there, I bumped into Tom Araya. And uh, I had a scrap of paper and a pen and I had him sign it for me. And I said, I told him, I said, dude, you guys should have been headlining today. And he goes, shh. <laughs> and I thought that was funny because he well, kind of knew he kind of knew they should have too, especially in San Antonio. Yeah, so, exactly, especially in San Antonio. Yeah. So San Antonio owns stock and Slayer. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if it goes the other way around because <laughs> a lot of bands claim yeah. San Antonio, but I I think that it should be San Antonio claims because you know San Antonio can make or break you a little bit. Sure, if you're a metal band yeah. or a hard yeah. rock band, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, um, I remember seeing Metallica at the Cameo Theater in San Antonio on the Ride the Lightning tour. Talk about make or break a band. Um, they were uh, they were booked. I remember hearing the ad on the radio. I remember when the gig was announced, and they said, coming live to the Cameo Theater, Metallica, and this is the Ride the Lightning tour in San Antonio, right? I'm there, yeah. And I'm thinking, who's the genius that booked this show? Because they're already huge in San Antonio. And I'm thinking Cameo is too small for Metallica at that point in San Antonio. That would have worked elsewhere, right? Sure looks good on paper, three sold-out nights. Yeah, so they ended up doing three nights, right? And I guess their, their, their touring schedule allowed for that because they obviously, or else they started pushing other gigs you know, to the back burner or something, but they ended up staying for three nights. And of course that's a piece of San Antonio metal history. And I was there on the second night. Um, but that was just, you know, you were witnessing, you knew you were witnessing the rise of something really big. 
And I knew it from the get-go when they announced that the show was at the Cameo Theater. I was like, there's no way. They're already too big for that place. And sure enough, they ended up doing three nights. And uh, if you were there in San Antonio, that's kind of a, a bragging right to say you were at oh, the yeah. three-night stand. At the I, was, uh, I was there for two, uh, two out of three. Uh, oh, okay. I was already a massive Armored Saint fan, and their first debut record on Chrysalis, March of the yep. Saints. They were the opening uh, act. Yeah, and I had also seen uh, basically the same bill uh, in Feb on February 21st of the same year, 85. And uh, it, was, it was only a few weeks later, I believe. So... Yeah, the, my ticket stub says February at the Cameo Theater. I don't remember the dates, but uh, okay, <clears throat> it was right. It must have been. Uh, it must. It was either right before or right out right after that, because I do know they were in Austin with Armored Saint. Wasp was that supposed uh, the headliner or the middle band. Yeah, and they canceled. Right. Uh, uh, and then uh, Presence from San Antonio ended up in, uh, on another episode of Talk Louder. We've actually talked about James calling my mom's house. Yeah, that, yeah. That whole thing. So <laughs> yeah. you guys need to uh, find that uh, sort of like um, Easter egg in one of our episodes where I'm talking about that infamous phone call. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I, I saw them Feb late February, Armored Saint and Metallica at the Austin Opera House. Yeah. So, uh, double check your ticket stuff. Anyway, so so um, already becoming a big band prior to Metallica opening for uh, Ozzy Osbourne. You know, they're already in theaters at this point. By '85, they they they're they're putting together Master, and uh, it was like a ticking time bomb. Right when yeah. you kind of think about they were they're too big for the cameo. Well, the cameo holds about comfortably like five hundred people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so to think that a lot of you know uh, every I bet people went to that show if they could get tickets for all three nights they did. So there was repeat offenders. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there was probably also some people just trying to hang out. You know, right out back out front who saw him the first night yada yada that was a, such a great time for for heavy metal and yeah. in san antonio i remember it was like i i wanted to live in san antonio back then yeah uh, anyway it was i practically did um <laughs> but but you know i think that all of these bands became huge in san antonio as well as other markets in the united states yeah but San Antonio was definitely an early stronghold uh, for all four of those bands. Yes. Um, yes. Most most definitely, and it was that was an exciting gig for me because obviously we didn't know it at the time, but I, I Cliff Burton was playing, and so I got to say that I saw Cliff, and uh, you just felt like you were part of something special watching this new breed of extreme music and a, a packed house going crazy. And then knowing that the city demanded that they come back for two more nights, you know, and it's right. like, yeah, right. dude, this is something, this is cool. <laughs> Let's go back to just, if you don't mind, uh, creating the influence for all of these bands. We've talked about the new wave of British heavy metal, but we didn't talk, and we, and we talked a little bit about destruction and 
Sodom and bands like that that were, you know, warfare. And then we we talked about Motorhead, which is sort of an in-between because they were so loud and nasty because of Crazy. Lemmy's d- disposition. Yeah. <laughs> and how and how everyone fell in love with that. But there were also bands like Tank that were bluesy, Motorhead maybe sounding, but yeah. very kind of punk rock at the same time for whatever reason, arguably. But there's a key band that's also straddling the fence here without trying to sound polished or be a good musician or a good songwriter, but we're dabbling in anything and everything that could fit in what would influence, you could call an influence for all four of those bands. And that is the band Venom. Venom. Yeah, I knew you were going there. Yes, yeah, of course. Yeah. The setup was obvious. They yeah. had all the 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 cheeky satanic lyrics. They talked about extreme things that you know Black Sabbath may mention, but but I think that Venom took it to the other place where they're you know talking about drinking the blood of virgins and 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 in their own cartoony way, well in their own way making it cartoony, right? Yeah, yeah. I mentioned that they could all you could just hear the not so hot musicianship, which is what made that great. In yeah. my opinion, I feel like if Venom were these excellent musicians, it wouldn't have been so fun, right? And uh, touchable. There, you know that's the punk element creeping into it. Exactly. You know? So, yeah. So New Wave of British Heavy Metal, which Venom are part of. Yeah, they are a huge part of that. Yeah. But but you also got to remember that Raven is also this massive influence upon upon the Big Four because of how. Um, electric they are and thrashy they are without the same elements as Venom without the same elements of you know bands that came just a couple years later with Destruction and stuff like that yeah other band Celtic Frost Hellhammer and that extreme music we're talking early black metal yeah yeah which was a giant influence on the big four they loved how roaring and like sort of just maddening this stuff sounded which influenced the sound of these bands now anthrax had their own way and their own translation of that same with megadeth all these bands grew into their own skins very shortly after with bigger deals and more money and more influence and more management whether you start saying they were they were starting to become polished at that point I wouldn't use that word. They're extreme. It's still extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think that it be all of this becoming this huge phenomenon is not a surprise whatsoever. Uh, the big four concert in uh, Bulgaria uh, 11 years ago in June, it'll be 11 years ago in June, uh, sort of introduced the idea, the trophy that these guys have earned as being this cluster of uh, something very, very special in, in, in American history, in music history, in thrash history, everything else. Uh, very, very well earned. Um, all of them are well-oiled machines. And other than with the recent retirement of Slayer, Everybody's still alive and still going. Yeah. 
and I, you're kind of leading me to somewhere I was going to go anyway. And uh, I, I got to give credit to, I think Anthrax is doing some great work in recent years. I've been a big fan of their last couple albums. And uh, I don't know if I can say the same about the other bands. Um, now, granted, I didn't give uh, the Megadeth record Dystopia. Uh, I heard that was a really good record, it's and I still have it. as hell. Yeah, that's what I've heard. So strong. I gotta, I gotta give them uh, some some props there. But um, I think Anthrax is doing some really cool stuff. I've been really impressed with their last couple albums, um, and so they're they're aging well, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And uh, I've seen them a few times in recent years. They're still high energy, still you know. I, I, they're doing great things, I think. I've, I know some friends of mine that aren't necessarily crazy about some of their their new albums, but I think they're pretty good. Yeah, what are some? What are those titles? Uh, one of them is called "For All For All Kings," and the other That's one is right. called "Worship Music." That's right. Okay. And those and they're solid, in my opinion. Um, yeah, they got great reviews. Honestly, I'm I'm a little behind. I don't have those records, but I need to I need to be fair to people listening. I'm a huge fan, but I I I'm just I'm just late on those, and I know we're talking years. Yeah, years work I need to catch up on. Right. Uh, uh, everyone everyone who knows me trusts me that that I'm in my own way. I'm keeping that music alive. Yeah. Uh, I, my kids at the School of Rock, I teach music for a corporate school called the School of Rock, and they uh, had me do not one but two big four shows. So I was doing wow. music from all four bands in two different shows, and each show had completely different material. So I just did 30 songs. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? A quarter of yeah. it. Megadeth, a quarter of it was Metallica, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I got Charlie Benanti to send the kids a, a, a good luck video. Oh, nice. Uh, and it was super nice of him to do. And uh, cool. um, anyway, I just wanted to mention that because I think that it's important that to, to know that, uh, you know, my 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 bosses are, are helping me keep it alive just as much as I'm trying to soldier it as champion it myself, just as much as you. Yeah. Well, that's why I wanted to have this uh, discussion today because I know you're so deeply rooted in the, in the thrash metal scene and, and very passionate and knowledgeable about it. And you've got some firsthand history of, uh, you know, playing shows with these guys and hanging out with them early in their careers, but when they were still driving around in a yellow Camaro or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most, most recently I want to plug that I got to, got to be on a few tracks on David Ellison's yeah. uh, no cover record. Yeah. Yeah. For super fun. And I think the production on it is just fucking huge sounding. So it's not, not a wimpy record. It was like, it's got the big money sound. The playing on it is outstanding. And it has, I'm on a record with all of my heroes. I got to be on a song with Dave Lombardo. I I mean, every song that I'm on has got Dave Ellison on it. So I've got two, uh, the big four right there. Yeah. But Charlie plays drums on a few songs. Um, it's got everybody on it. It's got Al Jorgensen on it. It's got uh, Dave McLean from San Antonio. Yeah. Who currently uh, 
in uh, Sacred Reich. He was in Sacred Reich before his 23-year stint with Machine Head. Yeah, yeah. Remember the Bay, it's a, they're a Bay Area band, so roundabout way, you could say uh, Dave McLean inadvertently is part of the big four historical, uh, you know, he's the corn in the vomit, you know, yeah. it's a giant pool <laughs> of, he's part of it. He'll appreciate that. <laughs> I'm trying to be vulgar without being anyway. Yeah, he he's part of the 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 tapestry of yeah. that, and uh, it's it's been great to to be even just a fly, you know, uh, on the wall uh, with uh, with that whole thing. Uh, I got to open for Anthrax. I got to open for Slayer. Uh, never did Megadeth, uh, but I but I'm on Elson's record. Uh, saw Metallica countless times in their early days and was pen pals with James Hetfield. And, uh, you know, until they just became so huge that, you know, I was would have been considered a stalker to keep trying to write him. But, you know, yeah. wrote back. I used to call him on the phone all the time. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I'm really glad that we did this show, uh, even just as how powerful uh, of a history lesson it can really be to people who like metal. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to put you on the spot one time before we before we close out this segment and and just ask you if you could only pick one album out of all the big four bands catalogs, only one, which album is your favorite between out of this out of the big four? I, I can't do it. It's really, it's, um, it's, it's really impossible. I mean, I could pick one record by each band. Yeah. I knew you I could do that. That's yeah, why yeah. I wanted to, that's, that's, that's why I wanted. That's, that's fairly easy. That's easy. That's why I wanted to up the stakes and make even, it even one. though I, I think that, um, in, in my brain and in my heart, the first three Metallica records, there's just one giant album. Yeah, that's not yeah. fair. I know, but it, just, <laughs> it kind of is one giant record. I think between '83 and '86, that's such a short time. The older you get, time just is, you know, days attached them. Days turn to years like overnight. I mean, it sounds like a country song or something, but <laughs> it's just a blur, man. And and okay, yeah, it's 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 uh you know it's early '83. Boom, it's '86, and you already have three records out, and you're you're opening for Ozzy. Well, guess what's next? You never open for anyone else ever again. Yeah, and that's only play real. the biggest stages the world can offer too. That's so. real. That's a yeah. real thing. So another American dream, uh, not without tragedy, not without sacrifice. And you could say these things about all four of these bands. Yeah. You really can. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I'll pose my, the same question to myself, and uh, I always kind of go back and forth. If I had to pick one album out of the big four, I'm probably partial to Master of Puppets. Although I will say <clears throat> that my son uh, is his favorite album of all time right now. He's only 12, so he still has a long way to go. But his current favorite album is Ride the Lightning. So he's got me revisiting Ride the Lightning. And there are days when I could easily pick Ride the Lightning over Master of Puppets. Uh, but it's probably one of those two records. And again, I think it's only because I'm probably more invested in Metallica than the other 
three bands. Um, cause like you, I could pick a favorite easily from, from all four of them and, and they're all going to be great records. But, uh, to me, probably it's probably master of puppets if I had to pick one, but that's impossible, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's still fair. Um, you know, you're looking inward trying to figure it out when you are asked a question like that and you struggle. Yeah. Right. Because of where you were when you first heard it, the smells, the sure. art you were writing in, the, you know, maybe not quite what you had for dinner that day, but you know, it yeah. is like that in your brain, your music, part of your brain, your, how that you perceive that in your memories, um, is why you are choosing that. Um, I have this weird sort of spin on the same idea about the big four and how much they changed rock and roll. All four of those bands just really changed the way. We've already covered that. What? I didn't know you could do that on drums. I didn't know you could play a guitar like that. Literally that, just over the top kind of thing. Yeah. It's already proven a little bit by Merciful Fate and Venom and 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 the and the early metal Iron Maiden and Judas Priest, but to take it to another level like you mentioned as well. Yeah. is huge. And, um, you know, your memory of that, I, I, I think, I think that if you liked, if you were, if you were already into hardcore or punk rock, and maybe you're a little younger than we are and you hear Metallica, you're like, Hey, th this is, this is cool. And then you heard Slayer. It's like you were waiting for Slayer. Yeah. See what you were waiting for that to become bigger than, or a peer of Metallica, but they were in the second breath uh, you know, you hear about Metallica, then you hear about Slayer, and that's that's normal uh, progress, right? Of just what was happening, all starting with uh, you know kids trading cassette tapes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool, man. This has been a good one. Uh, the Big Four. I knew uh, we'd we'd uh, we'd have a lot to to share with each other on this subject, and I I appreciate you giving us uh, some insight of your firsthand stories and experiences with some of these bands. Uh, that's a really cool some really cool stories about you sharing stages and uh, and being being friends with these guys before they were household names. So um, let's move on. Let's get to our parting shot of rock and roll. And Jason, my shot of rock and roll for you this episode. Tell us what is the first album you ever bought with your own money? This is a this question gets asked all the time, and it's kind of a it's kind of a I, I don't want to say it's a lame question, but the answers are always interesting. So that's why I'm gonna ask it. I know it's not a very clever question, but I always enjoy hearing the story of the first album anyone ever bought with their own money. I don't want to disappoint you, but I feel like I'm going to because <laughs> uh, the first record I bought with my own money, I don't, I don't really recall um, because I feel like I was getting records for birthday, for Christmas, for, and, and randomly buying them in between with lunch money I saved or allowance or whatever, if, if I even got an allowance. I don't even remember if I did or not. Surely, uh, you know, every once in a while I would clean my room and get 50 cents, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The uh, it, it's, it's uh, going to be a fight between what I remember 
if that's fair. Yeah, sure. Um, but it it could be a queen, a fight between Queen, Kiss, and Elton John, as wow. far as what would have been my first record. Um, yeah. I think uh, that I bought with my own money. To be clear to the question, right, right. A hotter than hell, maybe Kiss hotter than hell. I bought with my own money. Nice. Uh, I, I I could have begged mom for it, you know. <laughs> I was standing in a store looking, holding hotter than hell with, you know, in tears. Oh, my <laughs> you know, maybe I, I don't I don't have a memory of that, but yeah, uh, you know, that's how I felt about anything that was, uh, you know, considered to be over the top rock and roll. Yeah, and I considered Elton John and Queen to be over the top because I feel like they had a thing going on. You yeah, know, it's early. There was no big four yet, so you know. Yeah, yeah. You have to think about rock and roll in in its uh, infancy, kind of. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, if it, if it was hotter than hell, then I'd say that was a good investment for your first record. So awesome. Yeah, and to be clear, once again, I had many records already stacked before yeah. I had probably yeah. the first record I used. I used my own money to purchase. Yeah, uh, I had older brothers who had awesome record collections that I would, you know, kind of sneak around and check their check their records out too, and they had great stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, cool, cool. Uh, I got a shot of rock and roll for you. Um, a lot of people may or may not know uh, that you. Uh, had have uh, started uh, dabbled in you choose one of those words Dave uh, a career somewhat uh, on some kind of level in uh, as a journalist uh, more profoundly uh, about things you love and your main love is rock and roll heavy metal and things like that whether it be yeah. concert reviews or interviewing the bands that are coming to town for uh, publications here in uh, Central and South Texas. What, yeah. in any form, and you can clear up some of that, uh, how you kind of, how did you get here in, as far as journalism goes, uh, in a snippet of this, of this uh, answer to the question, out of all of the interviews uh, that you've done, because I know you've done quite a lot of interviews with some of your favorite artists and then people that were just, pawned off to you by the publication that was either yeah. paying you or not paying you yeah. to do a piece for and you probably just put your put your name in the hat to do it because you're a fan and that's yeah. just as real as getting a good money gig on it what was your favorite interview whether it was suspecting that you prepared for or were lat was last minute because you never know you could have interviewed Barry Manilow and had the best time of your life <laughs> I have not interviewed Barry Manilow, although I'm I'm not opposed to it. It's just uh, the, the opportunity has just never come up yet. So, um, so the to answer the first part of your question, I'm basically uh, got into music journalism because I'm a frustrated musician, right? So, at one time, I used to read all the music magazines when I was a kid, and and one day it occurred to me that somebody's getting paid to write these articles and somebody's getting paid to interview these bands. And 
I'm a pretty good writer. At least that's what my teachers told me all through, you know, middle school and high school well, and that sort of thing. Sounds like somebody's getting played to play pay that play. Someone's getting paid to play that guitar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> that's what, yeah, that's what you're talking about. Right? Exactly. So and I I still remember the the magazine I was looking at. It was sort of a one of these short lived magazines. It was called Metal Shop, and there was a picture of Steven Tyler on the cover. And I still have that same issue. And I would say that that was probably the turning point. That that's that's what inspired me to pursue music journalism, which I've done, you know, now for oh my god, twenty five years or something like that. But to answer your question, it's I mean it's it's absolutely impossible because some of the interviews I've done are are my favorites for different reasons. So there's a category of people who are great interviews just because they're great talkers. Like uh, Brett Michaels from Poison is a great interview because he's his own hype guy, right? And he's excited and he's friendly and he's supercharged and, uh, and he's a great talker and storyteller. Um, and then there's guys that, uh, like, he, um, he needs a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> he needs a podcast so we can release all those demons. Yeah. We should, let's just, let's just hire him to do one with us. And yeah, we should just, do that. Just hand him the mic and let him talk the whole hour. And he will. I know. <laughs> yeah. That'd be fun. So he's a, he's a great interview. I mean, there's people that are great interviews because they're great talkers. And then there's people that were great interviews because I just respect their stature in the world of rock and roll. And that would be, you know, the Ozzy Osbournes and the Ronnie James Dio's and the Neil Peart's and the Metallica's and the Van Halen's. And, uh, and then there's people that are great interviews because they were personal favorites of mine as, you know, like Kiss and the Ramones and things like that. Um, and then there's guys like uh, I always remember Rob Halford and Jeff Tate as being really gracious. I think there was a couple interviews with each of those guys where I knew the conversation was going long and I was trying to wrap it up and apologize to them for taking, you know, stretching my time limit. And on both occasions, I remember both of those guys saying, take your time, man. We've got all day. I'll stay with you as long as you need. And I always thought that was really cool coming from someone of that stature, who's probably in a hotel room waiting to go to dinner and I'm bothering him. Right. Um, so, you know, things like that, but you know, as far as if I had to pick a great interview based on just the quotability of the person, which is ultimately what leads to a great story and a great interview, right. Is, is, yeah. is good nuggets coming out of this person. And I have to go with Lemmy and I don't think that's going to surprise you of all people, but, uh, he's just so quotable, you know, and, and the beauty of it is he just, he's not, he's not trying to candy coat or sugar coat anything. He doesn't have an agenda, I guess is the best way to say it. Like if you interview a guy like Paul Stanley, uh, he's a great talker and he's great. He's happy to talk to you and everything, but there's always this angle of pushing the new album and pushing the greatness of kiss and pushing the, how enormous the stage show is this year. So you need to come back to this tour, even though you've seen the last 15, there's always this agenda to promote, promote, promote. Kiss and, and sell. Yeah. Yeah. Sell, sell, sell. Yeah. And Lemmy was never about that. Lemmy was just, you know, he would, you, he, if you didn't remind him, he'd forget that he's promoting an album. You know, right. well, he's also, and I recall this: he's always humbly telling you how how god awful his band is. 
Yeah. He's <laughs> yeah. always joking about, you know, same awful band you're going to see tomorrow night, you know, come, right. come hang out with us, you know. Well, he's the guy that came up with the immortal quote, you know, if Motorhead moved in next door to you, your your lawn would die. Yeah. <laughs> so Right. Well, so that's what he go. means. That's what he means when he's selling you the band. He's he's like a He's like, uh, we're, we're going to take out the garbage to your house. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm come over and bring my garbage. Yeah. That's what he's saying. So, so different, different people for different reasons. You know, it's, it's really impossible to pick a favorite interview. They all have their, you know, they all have their, their things about them that I found interesting or unique or uh, uh, funny. You know, Lemmy, of course, is very funny, too. So. Um, if I had to pick one just on sheer quotability and the quality of the conversation and the humor and, and the self-deprecating humor, no less, uh, Lemmy definitely stands out. I, um, I want to th- get in here. Uh, our producer, Jared, and I helped you sort of digitize old cassette tapes of these interviews uh, that yeah. you've collected over the years where yeah. you at one point had – no recording gear to some kind of recording gear because yeah. some of them you just can't really hear what's going on. Your interview with David Bowie might be my favorite interview, but I can't hear him because of your recording quality. Yeah. But I will say this, that that just right now, my favorite interview and the funniest interview I heard that I helped uh, helped you sort of like upgrade and preserve was yeah. your David Lee Roth video. I mean, not video, but your David Lee Roth interview. Yeah, that was unbelievable. Uh, you're, you're like running out of time, and are you? Are you even say something to him? Like you know, graciously, you're like, Dave, hey man, thanks. Uh, uh, I think that we're almost running out of time, and he interrupts you and goes. He goes, all right, man. Well, I tell you what, let me just give you some answers and you can insert the questions later. Uh, No, that wasn't me. Uh, No, I've never met her. Uh, Yes, Your Honor, I was here last week. (laughs) (laughs) And, And then that was it. Yeah, that that interview is pure comedy. And I've shared that tape with a few people and they end up on the floor just rolling. because, Yeah, I could sell it as a comedy album. It's really fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you can't make it up. You can't make that up. Yeah, it's right off the cuff. I mean, so yeah. yeah. Well, you, that was a funny story because he called. We had our time zones mixed mixed up, and and Kim, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was staying at my apartment. She drove in from Houston and was napping on my couch in my apartment while I was at work. And the phone rings and she lets it go to the answering machine because it's not her house and she's taking a nap, right? And this voice comes on and it's David Lee Roth and he's cackling on the phone. You know, he's like, Dave, it's Dave. Where are you, buddy? He said, Dave Lee. Yeah, he said, it's David Lee. It's Dave Lee. Yeah. Oh, maybe uh, David Lee. He didn't say Roth. He would just say David Lee. Yeah. Yeah. So then uh, Kim calls me in a panic at work, and she's like, oh, my God, David Lee Roth just called. <laughs> of course she did. Yeah. Why? And I would have done that. And I'm like, I wasn't happy like, at your apartment. I would have done the same thing. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. He's not supposed to call for another four hours. What did he say? And she's like, he left a message on your machine. And I was like, oh, my God, that's awesome. But what what happened to my interview, you know? Because right. so I'm I had still to call at work this- right now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so 
I called I called his publicist and we got it back on track and he and I had a laugh about that too. And that's when he said, I was just gonna I was just gonna uh, leave you some answers and you, have you make up the questions. <laughs> right. So I'm glad that in the ultimate interview that he actually pulled that one back out of the bag because yeah. he actually said that at the end of the interview too. Yeah. yeah, good stuff. You're what an honor that uh that you've been able to to talk to your uh some really really uh incredible musicians and songwriters that, that you are a huge fan of uh that the world is fan a fan of and they talk to you like you were a person and and back and forth and I just yeah. wanted to get you riled up about that for a moment. Cause it's, yeah. it's pretty freaking cool, man. Yeah. Thank you, man. I, 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 uh, I appreciate every, every cassette tape that I have, however degraded it might be, but you've seen them. I've got them in a box and they've got the names of whoever I interviewed. And, and, uh, at this point there's, there's quite a pile of them and, uh, and they all bring back memories and, and it's a lot of fun, especially now that I've got a kid who's growing up and, um, he just thinks it's amazing that David Lee Roth called my house or yeah. Gene Simmons called my house or, or something. Or like. Eddie Van Halen. I mean, you've got yeah. some of those interviews uh, those people have recently passed. So yeah. it makes yeah. it more cherished for that for that strange and oddly timed reason. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, brother. Well, man, it was great talking to you today. I enjoyed the 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 big four conversation. That was fun. And this uh, episode made me smile real big. Thank you. Uh, yeah, awesome. I knew it would. I knew yeah. it would. You're the they don't call you McMaster Blaster for nothing, you know. Hey. <laughs> or at least that's what I call you. Mm -hmm. So uh, on behalf of McMaster Blaster and myself, it's Metal Dave signing off on another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. Thanks for listening.